Well, good morning. Over at Christ Church, our little Westminster offshoot, we have been preaching through the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue that sermon series this morning. Interested in getting caught up to date fully, Andy Spanger designed a beautiful website for us, and there's a nice link to it on your Westminster homepage there, so you can go back and see what you've missed thus far if you so desire. But this morning, we are at Hebrews chapter 3, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first six verses. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 will be our text this morning, and we're going to look at it under two headings. First, prerequisite knowledge, and secondly, the greater knowledge, or I'm sorry, the greater Moses. Prerequisite knowledge and the greater Moses. Now, it is quite providential that this happens to be the week that our church is gathering back here with Westminster Because at this particular juncture in this sermon, that is the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3 provides this beautiful opportunity to go back over exactly what we've gone over thus far in the letter. It's natural that we might look back on what has been said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, given the text of chapter 3. So you won't be too far behind here. So I first want to look at this prerequisite knowledge that we must need uh, in order to understand this text that the author expects us to understand. I took a literature class back in my undergraduate days many years ago now. And in that class, I developed a sort of love affair for the American Southern Gothic writers, people like Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorite writers of all time, the young Cormac McCarthy, and of course, the godfather of the Southern Gothic novel, William Faulkner. And I remember the professor quoting Faulkner in class. And supposedly Faulkner, and I've given this quote before because I love it. I give it to my students all the time. Faulkner was fond of saying that you need to read 1,000 good books in order to write a decent one. You've got to read 1,000 good books if you want to write a decent one. He doesn't even say if you want to write a good one. If you want to write a decent book, you have to read 1,000 good ones. Now, a thousand good books, that's a lot of reading. If you're a voracious reader and you're knocking out one book every week, that gets you about 50 books a year. So that means it would take you 20 consecutive years of reading one good book every single week to meet the Faulknerian threshold of being able to now write a decent one. Now, I don't think Faulkner was engaging in a lot of hyperbole there. Writing well is difficult. It's a hard task. Even reading well, that's quite a challenge. Reading well is difficult. And just like with writing well, I think the only way to really read well is you have to read a lot. You have to dig in and you can't give up on it. But beyond the simple practice of continually reading, there are some useful tips, some basic strategies to instantly, right after this sermon, to instantly become a better reader. Now, one of the best pieces of practical advice I ever received in regards to reading well. And by reading well, I mean um, contemplating and understanding what exactly you have read, is this little piece of advice. When you're reading, stop at every conjunction, every transition, every connecting word, and ask yourself, do I understand what the author is linking together? Do I understand what he expects me to be connecting? The most important words, and this is particularly true when it comes to the biblical text, 
The most important words or phrases are often those simple words or phrases like, yet, but. Those simple words like, it follows then, therefore, furthermore, likewise. Conversely, phrases like, on the other hand, as a result of this. When you encounter those words, slow down, stop, and just ask yourself, do I understand the transition that the author is about to make? And if you don't, go back and read what you had previously read. Our text today starts with one of those all-important words. Our text starts with the word, therefore. Now, if you're just going about your normal daily Bible reading, and the next thing on the docket happens to be, all right, today on my daily Bible reading, I'm trying to knock through the Bible in a year or whatever it might be. Here I am at Hebrews chapter 3. You pick up the text, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. What kind of a chapter starts off with therefore? We need to remember Hebrews and the vast majority of Scripture, they were unified texts in their original form. They weren't broken up into these subcategories of chapters and verses and things of that nature. Hebrews is one unified letter. Actually, it's most likely one unified singular sermon. That's what the book of Hebrews is. It's just one single sermon. Undoubtedly, the greatest sermon ever preached. Everything that is going to follow that simple little word that starts Hebrews chapter 3, that therefore, everything depends on us, the audience, having understood and having accepted the argument that preceded that simple word. Therefore, well, therefore what? I need to understand what came before that. So what is the declarative premise or the premises that has come before that therefore? Well, what has come before that therefore is that Jesus is the radiant effulgence of the glory of God. That comes before that therefore. What comes before that therefore is that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And because of that, Jesus is the final, fully sufficient authoritative word from God to man. That all comes in the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 1. What comes before that, therefore, at the start of Hebrews chapter 3, is the idea that the Old Testament constantly speaks of Christ. We see that in the middle of Hebrews chapter 1, where the author just peppers us with seven consecutive references to the Old Testament. Most of them coming from the Psalms, and all of them pointing to the superiority of Christ. What comes before that therefore in Hebrews chapter 3 is that Christ is far superior to the angels. What comes before that therefore is that Christ descended to take on our full, complete humanity so that he might be able to be our high priest. That's what happens at the very end of Hebrews chapter 2. That's right where the sermon has left off. So Hebrews chapter 3 starts off with therefore... Because of all of that that I just listed. Therefore, holy brothers, what are we to do? The text says, consider Jesus. Therefore, because of all of that, consider him. Contemplate him. Fix your eyes upon him. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face as the hymn goes. And when you do that... The things of this transitory, passing, pilgrim existence, they start to grow strangely dim 
in the light of his glory and grace. The powerful angelic beings, they grow strangely dim. All the priesthood of Israel goes strangely dim. There's nothing more central in the Christian life than considering Jesus. The author of Hebrews certainly believes that. It's what he's doing in almost every single verse of his large sermon. The Christian life is one predicated on considering Jesus. And we do so, we consider Jesus, as the author of Hebrews tells us, as those that are called holy brothers. That's what he calls us, the ones that are considering Jesus. He calls us holy brothers. And the only reason he can designate us with such a high and lofty term of holy brothers is because the son, as he just told us in Hebrews chapter 2, has united himself to us by taking on our humanity, purifying it from within, sanctifying it, and perfecting it. That phrase, holy brothers, shows that God has invested a grand dignity in each and every one of us. He's invested a grand dignity that would frankly be insulting to reject or to treat lightly. It would be insulting to reject the dignity that we are given in and through the reality of the Son of God who has been made flesh and perfected our humanity from within. We are united to Christ. And insofar as we are united to him, we can be called holy brothers. We can be called holy ourselves. And as holy brothers, and only as holy brothers, do we have the privilege of considering Jesus. Now think about that phrase for a second there. Especially in light of some of the things we just mentioned, and especially in light of Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is the blinding radiance of the glory of God. And we can look upon him. Jesus is the blinding radiance of God, and we can look at him. I saw somebody write once that the sun can burn your eyes from 92 million miles away, and you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its creator. The sun can burn your eyes from 92 million miles away, and you just think, I'll just walk up to its creator. Mortal man has no business And stands no chance coming before Yahweh, who is a consuming fire. But by the sheer gracious condescension and then exaltation of the Son, we have a forerunner, one who goes before us. And cloaked in his righteousness, we are called holy brothers, adopted sons and daughters. And with confidence, we can approach the throne. And fix our eyes upon the God-man. We fix our eyes and our thoughts on the one who our text tells us is the apostle of our confession. I love that designation, that title of Jesus. It's one we just don't use enough. We call him a lot of different things and all beautiful things. But the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the apostle of our confession. Beautiful language. Think about what an apostle is. An apostle is a witness. But Jesus himself is called the apostle of our confession. That's to say he is the chief witness to himself. He is the apostle that points to himself, who is at the very same time the creed that he is pointing to. So having looked 
at that prerequisite knowledge and our command to therefore consider Jesus. Our text then makes this turn. And it wants us to consider then this comparison between Moses and Christ. And that's going to bring us to our second point, the greater Moses. Our text tells us, and listen to these words afresh, tells us to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses is brought up here by our author as one to whom we can compare to Christ because of the fact that he was faithful in all of God's house. It's Moses' faithfulness that makes him a fitting comparison to Christ here. The use of the word here of house or household, Moses was faithful in God's house. That word connotes this familial intimacy between God and his people. An intimacy between God and the members of his house. It's beautiful and really transcendently remarkable thing that we often take for granted that God allows you and I to call him father. That he has created out of us a family and we then use familial language with the one who authored the very cosmos by his spoken word. We use family language with him. So we might ask at this point, well, what was the house that Moses was faithful in? It says Moses was faithful in the house of God. What was the house that he was faithful in? Well, Moses was faithful, trustworthy in the house of Israel, the covenantal people of God. But I'd like to ask here, what was it that undergirded, that held up Moses' faith? How was it that he was able to be faithful? After all, being faithful is quite difficult. Well, certainly, part of Moses' faithfulness stems from the fact that he had seen God. There seems to be this large structural reason for why our author chooses Moses as an example in light of everything he's told us in Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2. It's not like he's just picking a random person from the Old Testament, but there's a specific reason why he's choosing Moses here as one to whom he compared to Christ, compared to Christ because of his faithfulness. The audience of Hebrews, these early Jewish Christians, they too had seen Jesus. And they have this message that they have received of the revelation of God in Christ. And once you receive that message or that vision, there comes with it this responsibility of faithfulness. If you see God, that carries with it the responsibility of faithfulness. And think back to Moses. Moses had seen God. Think of Exodus chapter 3. Right? He sees God in the burning bush. Moses had seen God in some way on Sinai. Remember, he comes down from Sinai with his face absolutely radiating and glowing 
because he had been in the presence of God. And our passage today, Hebrews chapter 3, it makes a direct reference to the beautiful Old Testament lesson that you heard read today. It makes a reference to that beautiful passage that's often not read because not a lot of us spend a lot of time reading the book of Numbers. Numbers 12 says this. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I make the Lord, I the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. But not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That's what the author of Hebrews is referencing right here. He is faithful in all my house. And because of that, with him, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly. And not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses was faithful in God's house. And there is this sort of reciprocal relationship to his faithfulness. He was faithful in God's house, and hence, God spoke with him mouth to mouth. That is very intimate language right there. Deep, personal language. Language that might make some of us squeamish. That's too close. And he beheld the form of the Lord, the text says. But he was faithful because he beheld the Lord. He was faithful because he had seen God. His seeing God is what grounded his faithfulness. It's what kept him planted, what kept him firm. That's what seeing God will do for you. Moses, for all of his shortcomings, and he's got lots of shortcomings, he showed noteworthy faithfulness. He was faithful despite grand opposition from others. You see, not only did Moses face opposition from the external forces, But Moses, he faced pushback from those within his own ranks. Within the house of Israel that he was faithful in, he had lots of unfaithful people he had to deal with. Moses was faithful in the face of the recently rescued Israelites. Unthinkable ingratitude and short-sightedness. He was faithful as they complained and they wanted to return to Egypt. They'd been enslaved for 430 years. They're out for 15 minutes, and they start to say, Hey, Moses, weren't there graves in Egypt? In Egypt, we could eat all the fish we wanted, and there were cucumbers and melons and onions and garlic, but we're starving out here. They've been out for 45 seconds. But Numbers 12, Numbers 12 verse 7 says, Moses was faithful in all God's house. He was the faithful leader of the faithless family of God, the wandering family of God, the pilgrim family of God. Now, Moses was faithful for sure, but he was faithful in a particular capacity, a capacity that will highlight the chasm, the gulf between the faithfulness of Moses and the faithfulness of Christ. Our text, if you look at it carefully, It says, Moses was faithful as a servant. Moses was faithful as a servant. For after all, he's a creature. 
His chief end, his created purpose, is to serve. He was faithful as a servant in the old house, in the old way of doing things. But he was not the author of doing things. Our text says Moses was, past tense, faithful as servant. But it says that Christ is, present tense, at this very moment, faithful as son. He is faithful as son. And as son, he is the author of the new covenant. He makes and upholds the covenant. And the maker of the covenant is greater than the thing that is made. Just as the maker of a house is greater than the house. Christ is greater than Moses. Now Moses here, he's not denigrated at all in this passage. For he builds up the house of God. But as verse 4 tells us, God builds or creates everything. Moses built up the house of God, but God creates everything. The builder of a house has greater honor than the house. But Christ has a double honor. As it is he that builds the house by pouring out his spirit on all those who will go into the world. But not only does he build up his house... He is the very house. He is the head of the church into which all of us must grow. Verse 5 and 6 of our text, they dig a little bit further into the similarity and yet profound difference between Christ and Moses. It says, Moses was faithful. The Greek word there is pistos. It's one of the first words that you learn when you take Greek in the New Testament, it comes up all the time. Faith is, after all, a pretty big concept. You want to get faith and faithfulness, right? So pistos is one of the first words that you learn. Moses was faithful. He was faithful or trustworthy, and he was trusted, the text says, within the whole house of Israel. That's not to say he didn't have run-ins within Israel. But overall, Moses was trusted. Trusted within the house of Israel. But think of those outside the house of Israel. Think of those outside that nomadic nation. Think of those outside of that primordial nation state. Do you think that they were very trusting of Moses as his nation is ramping up for harem warfare? Do you think they were pretty trusting of that guy? I don't think so. But Christ is trustworthy, trusted by these early first century Jews Trusted by Gentile alike. He as the son who descended. Has ascended. And he poured out his very own spirit. Making himself trusted in Jerusalem. Trusted in Judea. Trusted in Samaria. And trusted to the very ends of the earth. You see Moses. He was also faithful. On account of the fact That he faithfully unveiled God's will for the people. That's part of Moses' faithfulness. He unveiled God's will for the people. He faithfully brought down the law. He brought down God's will for our very lives. He was in the tent of meeting with God, as Numbers 12 told us. And he faithfully portrayed God to the people as best as he was able. In whatever capacity he could, he tried to portray God to the people. But Jesus gives a more faithful vision of God. For he is, as the author of Hebrews has already told us, 
the exact imprint of his very nature. The law of Moses, the will of God for our lives that he brought down, that law was shattered. After all, it was physically shattered. You remember the tablets are shattered. But it's also shattered by each and every one of us as we continue in our wayward paths of destruction and we constantly break the law of God. But Christ faithfully comes and he as the greater Moses He does not abolish the law, but he himself fulfills it by acting with his perfect, personal, exact, entire obedience. He fulfills the law. Moses, he stands in line with all of those who our author has mentioned at the very beginning of the book. He stands in line with those from long ago who at many times and in various ways spoke to the people of God, the prophets that spoke to the people of God. He bore witness to the light. He pointed forward to the light. But Christ is the very light of the world. Now, if we've been reading carefully through the book of Hebrews, you see something quite interesting when you get to verse 6. Verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 3 says, But Christ. Moses was a faithful builder, but Christ. That is the first use of the word Christ in the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews does nothing but talk about the second person of the Trinity. That's the whole book. How the second person of Trinity of the Trinity illuminates the triune God himself. And here we are, and for the first time we use the word Christ. Up to this point, we only get the title son. But here the son is the Christ. Christ meaning the anointed one. The son is the one anointed over his house. And we, you and I, we are that house. But, and there's one of those scary buts, one of those scary conditional phrases that you don't like to read. You want to just stop right there in the text. It says, and we are his house, the house of the anointed one, if. You don't like the ifs in the Christian life. We like the first part. We are the house of God. But that's not where Hebrews stops there. It says, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are his house, but we must not turn back. We must hold fast. And it's not a holding fast to our good works, but it's a holding fast to Christ. For he is the only way. In this world, this this often reminds me, as most things tend to do, this reminds me of Dante's Divine Comedy, the poem of all poems. That Divine Comedy is a deeply Trinitarian work. It's just peppered, peppered throughout with threes. After all, the book is broken up into three major sections, three major poems, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, the Paradisos, three sections. And within each section, there are 33 cantos. 33 cantos in the Inferno, 33 in the Purgatorio, 33 in the Paradiso. Actually, Inferno has 34, but there's one introduction, which means if you add 33, 33, 33, that's 99 plus 1, you get a perfect fullness, this 100. But each one has 33 cantos. And within each of the 33 cantos, in the Italian, each little section is, contains 33 syllables. It's threes and threes running throughout the whole thing. And in the third canto, of the inferno, 
Dante, led by his guide, Virgil, finally gets to the gates of hell. And he gets to the gates of hell and he's about to enter. And it's interesting to note that hell is gated because hell is small. Hell is gated. Heaven, when you get to Paradiso, is boundless because God cannot be bound by gates. But anyways, he gets to the gates of hell and he looks up and he sees this anti-Trinitarian reference on the gates of hell. The gates of hell is peppered by a false trinity of three. On the gates of hell, there's these famous words. I am the way to the city of woe. I am the way to eternal pain. I am the way to go among the lost. Now, anyone that has eyes to see realizes what Dante is doing there, right? He's saying, I am, I am, I am. That's what the poem is doing, right? I am the way to destruction. I am the way to woe. I am the way to suffering. And when you hear those I am's, it should draw your mind to John's gospel, where Jesus over and over again hits us with those I am statements. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the door. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. Dante's saying there's two ways in life. There is this way, the way to destruction, or is the way, the way of Christ. There's only one way to life. And the other way leads to the city of destruction, the city of death. Where you and I, we are all compelled to keep tight grip on the Christian faith, to walk in the proper way, to not let it slip away. Because what we have received, what this Hebrew audience has received, is the greatest revelation. Hebrews compels us to not have transitory faith, faith that's just surface deep. Faith that has no roots. You need roots. Because after all, you might have realized life is really hard. Tough times will come for you if they haven't come already. If you're sitting there, you're like, ah, life's not that hard. Just wait. Just wait. It will get there. I promise you that. Have, have courage. It will get harder. You don't see that on many PSAs on television. Just wait. It will get worse. You need roots because tough times will come. Temptations will come. There will be other angels, other gods, things that will try to pry your primary affections away, and they do a good job at it. Things that will come and try to disorder the priority of your loves. But genuine faith perseveres. False faith, pseudo-faith, dies at the first sign of opposition. Notice in verse 6. That we are told to hold fast to our hope. Hold fast then to your hope. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that our hope is laid up for us in heaven. What does he mean by that? What's laid up for us in heaven? Well, nothing less than the risen and ascended Christ. That is our hope. He is our hope. He is what is laid up in heaven for us. It's not just cool stuff laid up for you in heaven. It's not just new bodies and eternal life. What is laid up for you in heaven is Christ, who has ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Calvin says of that hope that we have, this beautiful words, or these beautiful words. Calvin says of that hope, meditation. Remember, we have been told to Meditate upon Jesus, right? To contemplate him, to consider him. Calvin says, meditation on the heavenly life ravishes our affections to the worship of God and to 
exercises of love. Meditating upon Christ ravishes our affections to the worship of God and to the exercises of love. Considering Jesus will ravish our affections to worship God and it will propel us to act in love to one another. Our hope is not built on Moses. As faithful as he was as a builder of the house of God, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Christ is the solid rock upon which the house of God is built. All other ground is sinking sand. And the one who was greater, and the one who is greater than Moses, he shall come again with trumpet sound. And when he comes again with trumpet sound, oh, may we then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. People of God, it's upon Christ, the solid rock, that we stand. Don't look back. Have faith. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen.